0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Stella Harris.
1: Fiston gets held up as this pinnacle of achievement in the kink world. The whole thing left me feeling kind of torn. <laughs>
0: That and more. But first, the next Risk Live show is at Caveat in New York City on February 17th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Tickets will also be available for the live stream on YouTube. It's an amazing cast. Camry Cruz, Devin Walker, Kate Willett, Philip Markle. And it's the day right after my birthday, so we can celebrate that too. As always, tickets will be available at risk-show.com tour. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. This is Matthew Whitaker behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Double Life. This is another one where Michelle Walson curated the episode, went into our archives, found three stories about people uh, feeling like they were one person in one arena and another in another. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Stella Harris, the fabulous Stella Harris. I'll say more about Stella after her story. But before that, we're going to hear from the fabulous Jonathan Bradley Welch. This is a story that Jonathan shared in Los Angeles. I think it was 2014. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Jonathan B. Welch. Here is Jonathan now with a story we call... Bros and Mo's.
3: So I've been, you know, the season of thanks and autumn and all of this has been making me think a lot about school. And I have always loved school to the point where, like, when I was younger, when I was a kid, I would make spreadsheets of places I should go school shopping for new clothes with my mom and be like, here, at this mall we might find this bargain, but at the other mall we can find something entirely different. So that should give you like a glimpse into the type of person I am. <laughs> I just loved like the idea of shopping for an entirely new wardrobe every fall, and like getting all new stuff and that like new sneaker smell and just all of that. And every year I would just get progressively more and more interested in what I was buying for clothing and progressively gayer and gayer and gayer every (laughs) single year. And it's fine if you're getting gayer by the year. I just didn't bother to tell anybody that that was my intention, (laughs) that I was actually a homosexual so with the whole school thing i went away to college and i was kind of bro-like back then i was very preppy if you will you know like this (laughs) abercrombie and fitch was big back then before like their bigoted ceo with the cat face like (laughs) ruined everything I'm not sure that he ruined everything. But, I, but, you know, it was a different look for me, a very different thing. And I went away to college and I did my best to just really bro it up in college and go to a state university and live with five straight men. And I decided, let's, like, you know, just keep this train of school going along. And I made the worst decision of my life to go to law school. And I went to law school for a few minutes and it was fine. <laughs> I was living with three of my best friends from college, three of my best straight male friends from college, and I just figured, like, I just had not come out. I didn't really have much to say on the topic. We had this guy that we knew from our college and he came out and my roommate, Pat, I remember said, um, so uh, this guy Gary came out, what do, you, what do you think about that? And this was like the mid 2000s when like Oprah was like really on a climb for like trying to tell you how to live. And so I was like, well, um, I hope that he's gonna live his best life like, no thoughts on that. I was like, I fucked him two months ago, actually. (laughs) But I didn't say it. I didn't say that. And uh, I was busy. It was the beginning of the school year. I was busy buying new clothes. I was in law school and just going down a rainbow slide with like rainbow flags going all the way down and nobody knew. And it was a secret. It was a whole secret. And I started law school and I was just like the good son and the Good kid and just going to be a lawyer and make some money and move away from you people. Uh, So (laughs) what they don't really tell you about law school, well, they do tell you this about law school, but I didn't pay attention. You can't really, like, work much. You can't have a job and go to law school. Some people do, and then, you know, that's part of their success story, and they run for office, and who cares about them, you know? (laughs) But, like... (laughs) I just, I couldn't really hold my regular job. So I did what you would do, and I uh, got a job as a topless shot boy at a gay bar (laughs) an hour and a half away from where I lived because, again, I had secrets and didn't want anybody to know. Um, It was a wonderful opportunity for me to work at this bar because I could essentially hone all of the gayness that I ever wanted and just pull it into myself and use it one night a week and make enough money for me to pay my rent. I had a whole theme going in my head for myself. I wore camo booty shorts, combat boots, dog tags, one of those belt bullets, bullet sashes, (laughs) like Miss Iraq War 2005 (laughs) bullets. Aviator sunglasses, big hair, and I would go up and pour shots into men's mouths to like take my breath away, like boom, 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 boom. Pshh, Psh, boom, boom, Psh, boom, boom, boom. Like a cold expression. So it's like, this is my work. I look at the wall, eyes on the wall, not on you. What do you know, men in New England love that shit. They love when you can't emotionally connect to them. (laughs) At all. So I was a hit, and I was making really good tips. And there was a guy, his name, we're going to call him Rob. And I've got to tell you guys, this is like the third or fourth time I've actually performed this story anywhere. And the more I perform it, the closer we get to his actual name. (laughs) with his fake name, so I'm getting afraid that it's gonna slip out and somebody's gonna be like, I know him! Um, Rob was about my age at the time, and he took a particular shine to me, and he was physically everything that I go for. He was a little bit bigger than me, a beefier guy, dark hair, boy-next-door kind of looks, and so it was relatively easy for him to take me home, which he did. And then he did it the next week, and then the next week. And I started to go home more and more with him. Again, I was living an hour and a half from where I was working, so it was actually kind of convenient for me. And I would just go home to my roommates, and they'd be like, where were you? I was like, at an event. I don't, just got crazy. <laughs> don't question me. So I, yeah, I would go home with Rob, and after like three, four weeks he started to get really attached. And he actually said to me, you know, I met you, or I started talking to you on Manhunt. Now, for those of you guys who aren't gay, and we're in a comic book store, so there are probably a lot of you, um, the the Manhunt. Anthropologists in years are going to be like, the gay homosexual male used the Manhunt to find his prey. It was before... We had Scruff before we had Grinder or any of those other apps that would connect us to geographically linked men that we could fuck. Before that, you would go onto a website, you would do the dial up internet, and then like you would be connected to men, type in your zip code and be like, hi, can I fuck you tonight? Okay, great. And you would talk to them, and there was definitely a mask. You wouldn't really see who that person was. And interestingly enough, Rob had told me, hey, you know, we chatted on this. You know, we had been chatting on it, and then you just kind of dropped off the face of the earth, and I recognized you at the bar. Now, 31-year-old Jonathan Bradley Welch, who you see before you tonight, is thinking, that's a red flag. If he had been talking to you on the internet and chose a month into this little foray to actually say, hey, I've been chatting with you on the internet and you just didn't remember me. That's a red flag. I think that that's actually kind of creepy. 22-year-old JBW thought, hey, I got a fan. I've got a fan. How exciting is that? Another red flag. He said to me one time, I don't really have any friends. Now, he was around my age, but he had taken a very different path in life. He had dropped out of college and worked, and he was doing actually rather well for himself in terms of money, because that was all ending up in my underwear once a week, so (laughs) I assumed he was doing okay. So he started to talk about how he really didn't have any friends, and then my naivete jumped in, and I basically was just like, well, I'm sure my friends would just love you. Which he took as an invitation to crash a party at my house. Yeah. Yeah. The party was the uh, sweatpants and moo gala that me and my friends decided to come up with and have everybody show up in either sweatpants or moomoos or some combination of, you know, whatever. And it was in Massachusetts in a big old Victorian house, and we lived not far away from our college campus. So all of our college friends came to the party. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that if you arrived at the party, it took a while for me to know that you arrived at the party. Took a while for me to know that he had arrived at the party and when I saw him there I was just completely ghost white. I didn't know what to do because I wasn't out and I didn't really know how I could explain my association with this person but I went up to him and he was like no it's fine I know I'm not supposed to say anything wraps I know you from something we came up with something I forget. And So I was just like, okay, fine, fine. And then towards the end of the night, I was like, go hide in my bedroom. Go hide. Just go away. Because he was drinking. I was drinking. Everybody was drinking. We were 22. Bush was president. You drank all the time. (laughs) Very, like, trashed. So everybody's drunk and we <laughs> retire to my bedroom. He had already been there for a while and I came in and I went into bed and then we started fooling around and then fell asleep, woke up, started fooling around again quietly so that nobody could hear um, <laughs> behind a locked door. And I was very secure with that, but certainly not with my sexuality, I guess. Um, so he, we were fooling around and he was like, I uh, I told a couple of your, just a couple of your friends about us. What? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know. It's kind of surprising. And I (laughs) was just like, what? He's like, I told two of your friends about us. It's not a big deal. It was two of the girls. It's okay. All of my straight guy rage that I had ever had came right out and I was like, what the fuck, bro? What the fuck? Fuck fucking did what, what, what? Get
0: the fuck out of my house, get <laughs> out!
3: Grabbed, you know, all of his things. I was like looking for things to throw at him that weren't even his, like my shoes. Like, take my shoes, yeah, so I'm like, get out. He outed me. When you lose control, you know, I was very concerned with control. I was very concerned with the fact that I could live these two lives, that I could be this perfect boy next door, straight guy, going to law school, maybe gonna run for office, probably marry a beard or something. I just (laughs) didn't know how to handle that. And then on the other half of my life was this other extreme that I was working in a gay bar, that I was taking my clothes off for money, and objectifying myself so that I could express this thing that was so deeply suppressed. So I'm actually very thankful to him, to Rob, wherever he is today, because we're not Facebook friends. (laughs) I'm thankful because he made me really take a look at myself and think I need to make a change and held a mirror up to me and it was like, it's time for me to stop living two lives, it's time for me to come out. And so I I did, I came out to my friends, to all my bro friends, thank you, clapping over here, thank you. (laughs) And I came out, and it was fine, and the same friend who like, asked me about what I was thinking when our person that we knew in college came out was like, oh, that's good, so you're gay. What are you gonna be for Halloween now <laughs> <laughs> you which I took as a good sign. And the other thing that I kind of forgot to mention is I hated law school and it wasn't for me and clearly I wasn't going down that path so I needed to quit that too. And uh, so I had to have a conversation with my mother and that's a tough conversation to have with your mother. Like, I'm shattering all your dreams Um, and then also I fuck guys. (laughs) And my mom was like, you know what, about the law school thing, it's okay because all my other kids have gone to jail at least one night. You're on the right side of the law just studying it for a little bit. Nugget number two about the gay thing, it's fine, it just sucks because men are pigs. And she's completely right. And I wish I didn't take out all those student loans because that lesson was completely free. You guys have been wonderful. Thank you so much.
4: one of the greatest fucking scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is? What? Top Gun. Oh, come on. Top Gun is fucking great. You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots? Yeah, it's about a bunch of guys waving their dicks around. It's a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. (laughs) That's it. That is what Top Gun is about, man. You've got Maverick all right he's on the edge man he's right on the fucking line all right and you've got Iceman and all his crew right they represent the gay man right. all right and they're saying go go the gay way go the gay way he could go both ways what about kelly
0: mcgillis right? kelly
4: McGill- she's heterosexuality she's saying no 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 go the normal way play by the rules go the normal way right. and they're saying no go the gay way be the gay way go for the gay way right. all right that is what's going on throughout that whole movie
5: i want somebody's butt i want it now i got it
0: this gives me a hard on don't tease me
4: Man's been trying to get Maverick the entire time. Finally he's got him. Alright, and what is the last fucking line that they have together at all hugging and kissing and happy with each other?
5: You can be my wingman anytime. Bullshit. You can be mine. Yeah. Sword by Swordfight! Sordby! Take us!
3: This is my work. I look at the wall, eyes on the wall, not on you.
1: When I heard about a queer fisting party, I thought, this is the place for me. (laughs) Fisting gets held up as this pinnacle of achievement in the kink world. A friend of mine even made patches you can wear to show everyone that you've achieved fisting status, like some kind of perverse Girl Scout merit badge. (laughs) The whole thing left me feeling kind of torn. On the one hand... (laughs) On the one hand, I was eager to give it a try. But on the other, I was wary of anything that people do just to say that they've done it, or in the internet age, because pics or it didn't happen. But if I was ever going to try this thing, I figured a party dedicated specifically to fisting was the place to do it. So there was this woman I'd had my eye on for a while, Julie. I was equally turned on and terrified by her intensity. I'd seen her talk about her kink, and I liked the way she worked. So when I saw her post online that she would be at this party, and that she would have a willing fist, I thought, well, if I'm going to do this thing, I may as well go all in. (laughs) So I sent her a message asking if she would pop my fisting cherry. And she wrote back right away, saying that she would. I had very little time to think about exactly what I was getting myself into, because the party was the next night. When the event started, it began with a workshop. There were two couples of various genders demonstrating both anal and vaginal fisting. They had cameras set up very close up to the proceedings, projected on a screen larger than life, so that we could see exactly what was going on. It was kind of surreal. It was as if they were teaching us a very mundane activity like how to change the oil in our cars. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, fisting is working your entire hand up to the wrist into the orifice in question. Once you're inside, you can form a fist, and then, depending on the orifice, there might be prostate or G-spot play. So as I was watching this demonstration, a few different things were going through my mind. On the one hand, I was wary of any sexual activity that was so goal-oriented, I didn't think an intimate act should be able to end in failure. (laughs) On a more practical note, I was looking at the size of the holes and the size of the fists (laughs) and thinking that I really wasn't sure my body could do that. But as the workshop ended, people started rustling the cold metal chairs that we'd been sitting in and mingling about and making small talk and pairing off. And I started eyeing the door, wondering if I could make it out. (laughs) If I hadn't made a date, I probably would have made a run for it. But I didn't want to stand her up and be rude. So I started milling around, feeling awkward. Part of why I was feeling awkward is that for a long time, I felt kind of out of place in queer spaces. For as long as I can remember, from back to when I first came out, I just haven't felt queer enough. When I was 17, I marched in the Long Beach Gay Pride Parade. It was the first year they'd allowed a bisexual group to march, and there was a religious group there specifically to protest us. They had signs, and they were yelling that AIDS was our fault. Their theory was because the bisexuals were the conduit between the gay and straight communities, that it was our fault that straight people were getting it, which was, of course, all they actually cared about. So then I went off to college, and I thought, well, this will be my super queer adventure. And yet I found more of the same. I started attending the lesbian group that met at the Q Center, and when I told them that I was bisexual, there wasn't overt discrimination, but they were cold and distant, and so I just stopped going. There was a bisexual group, but they were kind of a ragtag bunch that just met once a month to watch a movie. And that wasn't exactly what I was looking for either. (laughs) So I just went about my business, having relationships and sexual encounters outside the larger context of support, and that was fine. So flash forward to the me of today, and I find Portland quite a bit more welcoming. But things still happen. At a recent queer women's event, someone came up to me and said, I thought you were straight. Luckily, I saw Julie across the room, and it pulled me out of my reverie. She was chatting with a group of people, and I didn't want to interrupt. So I just started sidling closer and circling, wondering if there's fisting date etiquette. (laughs) Eventually she noticed me and called me over and greeted me with a big smile. She introduced me to the people that she was talking to and began telling them very loudly what we had planned for that night. (laughs) She then asked them to give me references and several people in the crowd gave me a thumbs up. So she asked if I still wanted to do this thing, and I did. So we went off to find a place to play. We ended up choosing a room that was off to the side of the dungeon, and it was decorated in disconcertingly bright colors for a dungeon with clouds painted on the ceiling. And although it was sort of out of the way, the door had to remain open. This was party rules so that it could be monitored for safety. And that meant that anybody who wanted to could come and watch, Or more of concern to me could come and listen because I have a reputation for being loud. So we began a game of toy bag show and tell. She pulled out the tools and toys she proposed to use on me and I brought the entire brand new bottle of cichlid organic lube, my favorite, (laughs) as she had instructed me to do. And we started to negotiate a scene. Now I don't usually play all of that hard. I don't have as high a pain tolerance as a lot of people in the kink scene do. And this is another thing that leaves me often feeling not quite enough. People get very competitive and at the end of the weekend are showing off their bruises and which are the biggest and the darkest. And it's just kind of not my thing. That said, every three or four months I have sort of a masochism ponfar and I'm looking for something a little more intense like I want some sort of ordeal to go through and come out on the other side. And this was one of those nights. So we negotiated a scene that included quite a bit more than fisting. She proposed what she wanted to do, I stated my limits, and we got started. I lay down, and she started using a series of nasty canes and paddles on me, and right away I was living up to my reputation of being quite loud— And then I turned over, and she started kicking and stomping on me with these amazing heavy-soled boots that she was wearing. And it was fantastic. It was exactly what I needed to get pulled out of my head and and really be in my body and silence the voices that were saying, this is kind of fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) So when the fisting part of the adventure was going to start, I was laying on my back, and she had me spread my legs and bend my knees, and she camped out between my legs and gloved up and started applying copious amounts of lube. The break in play was long enough that I opened my eyes and kind of looked around, and I saw that a crowd had formed around the door and was watching us. I worried that this part looked a great deal more gynecological than sexy. (laughs) But as she inserted a couple of fingers, she got my attention And I was back in the moment and paying attention to what was happening. What I hadn't realized was that the rough stuff was going to continue during this part of the play. So as she's trying to work one hand into me, she's made a fist with the other, and she is just punching me in the cunt over and over again. (laughs) And although that was fantastic... (laughs) It didn't lend itself to relaxing. (laughs) With every impact, I seize up and tighten and clench down. And at the same time, she's saying things to me like, relax. (laughs) And open up. And I'm thinking, are you fucking kidding me? And I'm beginning to get self-conscious about how long this is taking. Four fingers is really no problem, but, but getting over the knuckles and thumb is just not working for me. So she tells me to turn over because she's going to fist me doggy style. Well, I didn't even know that was a thing. But I did as I was told, and she was right. Things were loosening up. It was working out. She was saying things like, yes, yes, yes! And I was bearing down, and I was screaming, and it was like some sort of strange birth scene out of a movie. <laughs> And by the time her fist popped all the way into me, I had completely achieved the downward-facing dog yoga pose. (laughs) Only I was screaming bloody murder like the least relaxed yogi ever. (laughs) At that point, I was completely spent, and I collapsed on the ground, and her fist came out of me, and she snuggled up around me, and she was saying things like, You did it! You did it! And I really did feel like I had gone through this ordeal and come out the other side. Like maybe if I could get this woman's fist inside me, maybe I was kinky enough and queer enough to be there. But even though I had earned my perverted merit badge, the process of earning it kind of taught me that I'd had the right to be there all along. (laughs)
0: This is Risk. This is Johnny Rivers behind me now, and we just heard from Stella Harris. You can find Stella at stellaharris.net, and her latest book is called Tongue Tied Untangling Communication in Sex, Kink, and Relationships. Holy cow, I own this book. This is such an important subject, and Stella brings so much heart. To the matter. Really, really encourage you to look that one up. And before Stella, we heard a little interstitial, some gay goings on in the movie Top Gun by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, if you like good old fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey ...objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Folks, did you know that at thestorystudio.org, we teach workshops on storytelling for personal growth? All kinds of wonderful exercises for mining your memories and using active imagination to go back and recreate some of the scenes from your life, going through old journals and stuff like that. We also teach workshops in storytelling for business, stories that you might include in presentations or job interviews or networking chit chat. And of course, we teach storytelling for the stage, in case you want to present at a show like The Moth or you're working on a solo show. And we do custom tailored workshops for small organizations or very large businesses. All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. Now, our final story on this week's episode is so surprising. This comes, again, from 2014 at the Risk Live show out in Los Angeles. This is Emily Krauser. Emily has done both journalism and fiction writing. And here she is now with a story we call drunk girls keep no secrets
6: so two years ago i was diagnosed with non-hodgkin's lymphoma i'm fine now i've been in remission for about a year But at the time, the worst thing about finding out that you have cancer is realizing you have to tell other people that you have cancer. And I was 27, which meant that most of my friends really were going to have no idea what I was about to face. Most people my age went to the emergency room because of drunken falls or panic attacks or pregnancy scares. I ended up there because I was having trouble breathing, and it felt like there were these tiny little daggers just stabbing me in my back. So that was how I ended up in the hospital. But in my defense, I've never taken the easy road to get anywhere. So I ended up in Cedar sinai for about three weeks. That is not standard procedure. What happened was I had a biopsy, normal way. They find out what type of cancer you have. But mine turned into emergency surgery because the tumor was here and it was pressing against my lungs and hearts and whatever other body parts you have in here. Um, and I woke up to find out that not only had I had multiple surgeries, but I now had these like IVs and tubes hanging off me. So I had to recover and I looked like a victim from Saw. (laughs) So because of this, my doctors wanted to make sure that I had my first round of chemo in the hospital so they could keep a watchful eye on me. In reality, I'm pretty sure that they kept me there because I was the youngest person on the oncology floor by about 30 years which meant that all the nurses could come in and interrupt my Victoria's marathons, which I did not appreciate, but they were filling me in on the latest issue of Us Weekly, and I do love Miley Gossip, so I appreciated that. <laughs> Once they let me out of the hospital, I stayed curled up like in the fetal position for about a week on my couch, binging on nothing but saltines, more Miley Gossip, and Breaking Bad, because nobody told me that Walter White had cancer. <laughs> If you're going to binge watch, even with time on your hands, know what you're watching. Luckily, during all of this, my mom was able to fly out from New Jersey, so she was with me the whole time and she pretty much took care of everything. She got the meds taken care of, she talked to the insurance companies, she made sure Netflix never stopped rolling. And she also was the one doing the majority of the communication, even as far as talking to my dad and sister who were back east because I had pretty much just cut myself off from everybody, you know, Facebook, texts, phone calls, carrier pigeons, I wanted nothing to do with any of it. A couple people in LA were told what was going on, For what I like to call logistical purposes, like two of my friends had to tag team my car back from the hospital because on top of cancer, I was not racking up those parking garage fees. And then I told my ex because he works at what I think is the best breakfast joint in LA. And you're fucking crazy if you didn't think that I deserved some chocolate chip pancakes after all of this. They were all sworn to secrecy though, but... All this in total took about was about a month's worth of time. And after that, I needed to get the hell off my couch and talk to somebody besides my mother and Walter White. (laughs) Luckily, that first weekend, I decided to become a human being again. A friend was having a birthday party at a tiki bar, and I was determined to go. My mom let me go, which is still a weird thing to say because I was 27. (laughs) But she allowed me to go, but with a stipulation. I needed to have a chaperone. So I enlisted the help of my friend, Lee, who was one of the guys who tag-teamed my car back because my mother said since I was just out of the hospital and hopped up on pain meds, there was no way she was letting me near a car if I was behind the wheel. Luckily, uh, my mother loves Lee. He lives in my neighborhood. He is also Jewish and drives a very reliable Honda. So this was the perfect chaperone. And I walked into the Tiki Bar and I was so excited to be there and nobody knew. I had cancer. I know that sounds weird, but this was like really, really exciting for me. I also realized as soon as I stepped in there that there was no way I was gonna make it that long because this tiki bar was in the valley and it had a fireplace. It was like 140 degrees in there. And the one of the side effects that most people don't realize with chemo is that you get set into like early menopause during the process. So I felt like I was on fire. Not only that, there were some very obvious physical cues that not all was well with me. And my friends were smart enough that I knew that the longer I stayed, the better chance that they were gonna pick up on these. And they included the Batman Band-Aid that I used to cover my biopsy scar, my arms were covered in these like baseball-sized bruises from the vampires at the hospital who kept taking all my damn blood. And I was Casper pale. This was June. I am from New Jersey. I know my way around a tan in a can. This was, this was wholly unnatural. So I had figured out throughout the night that there were gonna be two good ways to get me through the evening and not have to share my secret. One was to care bear stare all of my friends that asked anything until they forgot. (laughs) The second one was to pray that Lee was gonna just keep making the rounds to check on me and would be able to change the subjects. And I know those sound like faulty options, but both of them worked really well for me that night. And I was so proud of myself because for a Jewish girl from New Jersey, I was keeping my own secret really well. (laughs) Then around 11.30, I realized that I needed to start my Jewish goodbyes, you know, so I could get out of there by one. And I started making my way around, and I saw all my friends, and I get to the very last booth, and I wished that I had Irish Goodbye instead, because it was a table full of waste faces, and at the very end was the biggest waste face of all, who also happened to be a good friend, and also one of the most Jewish people I know in L.A., and due to the Cheshire cat grin on her face, the glazed over eyes, and the really big hand motions, we will just refer to her in the story as drunk girl drunk girl grabbed my right arm. Now this arm at the time was attached to a pick line. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but basically it's a semi-permanent IV. The mine happened to be attached to the upper right part arm. It was on my arm, it was on my arm. Um, and so my arm could only be twisted so far without causing extreme pain or sending me back to the ER. And I really didn't want to go back there but she had this like death grip on my arm. And all of a sudden she slurs, what happened? And it was like, nothing, no big deal, It's gonna be fine. She's like, did a boy do this? (laughs) First off, that is a weird place to get sucker punched. On your forearm, really? (laughs) Second, my ex and I had broken up months earlier and his balls were at much bigger risk than my arm ever was. And third, I wasn't really dating much in the hospital ward. I knew she didn't know that, but nonetheless. Then uh, her emotions tend to get really heightened with vodka. I had no idea her strength did also. (laughs) Because my arm was getting Indian burned and we did this little back and forth for a while of, what's wrong? Nothing, what's wrong? I'll tell you later, what's wrong? Seriously, can I have my fucking arm back? I need to go home. And I realized in that moment, because she really, God help, wasn't letting go, that I had to tell her some semblance of a reasonable explanation or I wasn't going to get home and my Cinderella slipper was already a freaking pumpkin, like I needed to get out of there. The problem with chemotherapy is that, well, there's many problems, but one of them is that it gives you chemo brain. And when chemo brain hits, it hits hard. So my mind was blank. I couldn't come up with any semblance of a lie that any other normal person in that situation would have been able to come up with. All I had was like blinking, open sign that was just, tell her the truth. And in that moment, I hated both my body and my brain so much, because they were clearly both in cahoots to backfire on me. (laughs) So I shimmied her out of the table, which again, not hard, she was still attached to me. And I walked her over towards the bathrooms. We didn't get as far as in the bathroom. I felt lucky that I had walked her that far. And I stood her up in the hallway and launched into my explanation quietly. I had done a little like scouting, make sure no one was in range of hearing us. And I was like, listen, the bruises are from blood work. The reason you haven't seen me in weeks is because I was in the hospital. I have non Hodgkin's lymphoma. I've already started chemo. Gonna be fine though. I am gonna be the most badass cancer kid. I'm going to eat so many chocolate chip cookies. I'm going to overread Kerouac and Klosterman to the point that none of you are going to want to talk to me again. And I'm going to buy so many purple wigs. (laughs) You can see what I've already done. So (laughs) now that I do have my hair back. And then I look at her and she's already started welling up. And all of a sudden, I'm the one who has to hold her heaving shoulders, wipe her tears away, and convince her that everything's going to be okay. Okay. So because I had to tell her this secret that I had not wanted to share, I was not sending her back to her booth without making a promise. I was not ready to tell anybody else that I had cancer. She had to keep her mouth shut. Could she handle that? She sobbed that she could. I did not believe her. But again, pumpkin. So I needed to I needed to get home. I was ready to pass out at that point. This is the most most emotionally draining thing that I had dealt with since you know being out in public. So I send her back and I beeline for the door and I just collapse on the first car and I was so happy to have fresh air but I was so emotionally drained because all I had wanted was this one last night where I wasn't a cancer patient, I was just Emily. And I couldn't even manage to do that. But of course I couldn't, because I was a cancer patient. No amount of hopeful ignorance was going to change that fact. About two weeks later, I started blogging, which I know is shocking for a writer who lives in Los Angeles. (laughs) And my first post was explaining my diagnosis to my friends, my family, and every human being on the internet. Not only did it allow me to just tell everybody in one click, because you can only repeat the story so many times. But it also helped me work through all these feelings that I hadn't quite figured out. Frankly, it's been two years. Don't know if I still have. But this was an easy way to do it. But the thing I didn't realize was that it was going to open up this Pandora's box of phone calls and texts and messages. I'm not sure why it didn't occur to me, but I was shocked. I was literally shocked. I was like, oh, God, so many people to speak to now. And most of those people, a lot of those people, I should say, had been at the Tiki Bar that night. Until I posted something none of them knew that I had cancer. This drunk girl had actually kept quiet. Thank you guys.
0: All for this week's episode, folks. This is Jack's mannequin behind me now, and we just heard from Emily Krauser. Emily was thrilled that we were finally running the story on the show, but she said, Since I told that story in 2014, I was diagnosed with another cancer, a rare sarcoma in 2020, completely unrelated to the previous cancer. She's now in remission. So she is a double cancer survivor there. Just something else. Uh, Go Emily. And folks, I want to remind you that we so, 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 so very much need your support over at patreon.com slash risk. There's so much bonus content over there. I mean, there are many, many, many dozens of hours of bonus content at patreon.com risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show.
2: Families have a lot going on.
0: Folks, don't forget we want to create a sort of a social event for Risk fans in or around New York City. So if you are one of those folks, email me at Kevin at Risk-Show.com and I'll put you on a list of folks to contact when we do that. You know, most likely March or April, somewhere around there. And, folks, did you know you can hire me personally for storytelling training? You can find me at kevinallison.com. You can find Risk at risk show.com. And on all of our socials, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we're at Risk Show. And I'm at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. There's no problem leading a double life, it's the triple and quadruple lives that get you in the end.